you have your Bibles, why don't you meet me in the book of Mark chapter 11. It's been a somewhat of a slow journey through this book, but today uh, we are going to uh, pick up the pace quite a bit. This is going to be the largest section of Mark that we have attempted to cover uh, in one sermon. And so the way I want to approach it today is once you get there, um, the sermon basically, as you see, if you, if you got a bulletin this morning, it's basically broken into three teaching points. And so um, I'm, I will read those section of verses uh, as we come to each teaching point instead of reading all the verses um, here at the outset. His name was Erwin Rommel. He was to be known as the Desert Fox, but before leading the Axis Army in North Africa, Rommel was, was a commander in the German Army as they invaded France in 1940. And it was during this invasion that Rommel tells of having taken a ride in his command car to the front. He was driving through the Belgium hills when he rounded a turn and came face to face with a truck filled with enemy soldiers. Without missing a beat, Rommel was out of his command car and calling loudly to the soldiers. And this is what he said. You are all now prisoners of the German army. Just drive your truck in that direction and you will be processed accordingly. <laughs> the soldiers in the truck nodded their agreement and moved to comply. The truck behind them followed suit, as did the truck behind that one. And when it was all said and done, to Rommel's amazement, he watched 20 truckloads of soldiers surrender, all because one man had spoken with authority. One of the distinctive things about Jesus was that he spoke with a calm but unshakable authority. This set him apart from the rabbinical teachers of that day who were always having to quote the opinion of some earlier rabbi or expert. Jesus spoke from God. He was able to say, thus saith the Lord. And he even went further to say, thus saith me. Why? Because he was the Lord. He did not speak, he did not only speak with authority, he also acted with authority. He acted with authority when he commanded demons to leave those whom they possessed. He acted with authority when he told the storm to be silent. He acted with authority when he told a lame man to walk and when he rebuked disease and it departed and when he commanded a dead girl to get up. He acted with authority when he came and he cleansed the temple and he cursed the tree. Imagine what would have been the reaction if an out-of-town carpenter showed up today in our church and began to overturn pews or chairs and tossing around the offering plates. What would your reaction be? Hmm? I would imagine it would be the same as the temple ruler's reaction was. What gives you the right to do these things? As a matter of fact, 
Who do you think you are? Would more than likely be our response as it was for those in Jesus' day. This morning, if we were going to sum up this section of verses, beginning in Mark eleven twenty seven and going through Mark twelve seventeen, this would be the summation of these verses as I have read them over and over and over again this week, is that Jesus has all authority over all life because he, because he authored life in his image. Now, that's not any of the blanks. That's just something to write down. That's kind of the big idea of these three sections of text that we're going to read today, that Jesus has all authority over all life because he authored life in his image. Now, there's a lot there, and that's basically what we're going to unpack today. Why does mankind re- rebel against the, against the God in whose image they are created? And that's, what this, that's what this series of verses is all about. It's about Jesus uh, reiterating. This is not the first time that Jesus has stated his authority, but Jesus is reiterating his absolute authority over everything. And so why does mankind rebel against the God in whose image they were created? Well, our first parents rebelled for the same reason their descendants rebel today. They believed the lie that God was not good. They believed the lie that God was not good. Can I say something to you today? I think at the root cause of every sin that's ever been sinned, that ever will be sinned, that you have ever sinned, that the root cause of it is that we simply do not believe that God is good. Do you, do, can you hearken your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and to the encounter of Adam and Eve, mom and dad, our, our, our first parents, the, the two from whom all the, world, uh, uh, all the world's people come from? And do you remember the conversation they had with the, the sneaky snake, the slippery servant, the one who spoke to them and said, Has God really said... Or God doesn't want you to have this because he knows that in the day that you eat of this, you will be like him. What is Satan doing? He is calling into question the goodness of God. Now, these first parents of ours, uh, it's not like God is unknown to them because they had a relationship with God unlike any relationship that any other two human beings have ever had. And that is that they... The scripture says they walk with God in what? The cool of the day. They lived in a paradise that was free from any arduous labor. Uh, their fruit and, 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 and bounty grew uh, with no difficulties. There was no need to... Uh, hoe any weeds or, or, or prune any branches. Everything was pristine. Everything worked without 
without the results of the fall that the fall would bring in. And yet, with God's goodness surrounding them, Satan, because God permitted them from committing one act, from eating of one tree, says, you know what? If God was really good, God would give you everything. And they believed the lie. And ever since that day, we continue to believe the lie every time we sin. Why? Because we believe that what God has said for us to do or not to do is not what is best for us. That somehow God in His, uh, what He permits us to do or prevents us from doing is holding out on us. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And yet, man is in search of happiness and joy in all places except for the one place where ultimate happiness and ultimate joy is found, and that is living as a creature in submission to the Creator's authority. So let's talk about authority. And let's first talk about the, neg- the, the negative side of authority. Why do people rebel? Let's talk about the root of rebellion. I've already kind of given you some insight to it already uh, from our first parents, Adam and Eve. But let's look from our text today at the root of rebellion. Let's, let's hear Jesus' own words concerning this. And they came again to Jerusalem. Now, remember, in the chronology, we are in the final week of Jesus' life. We are still on Tuesday. By Friday, Jesus will be on the cross. By Friday afternoon, he will be dead, and he will be placed in a tomb. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, now now watch, watch what they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Now remember what he has done in the temple. He has cleansed the temple. He has turned over tables. He has, he, he has cleaned house. This has been quite the event that's gone on inside of the temple. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, we don't have the time to go into all the nuances of this, but this is slick. I mean, Jesus, you you can't out, I mean, you you can't outthink him. You can't out, uh, uh, you, you can't corner him up. You can't trip him up. And they discussed it with one another saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Speaking of John. But we shall say from man. And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, 
We don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, what's at the very root of rebellion? Well, what's at the root of, the, of rebellion is what the, theologians called depravity. Depravity. It, it's just a way to talk about sinfulness, the, the utter sinfulness of mankind, of humankind, that, that we are utterly depraved. Now, we're not as depraved as we could be, but nonetheless, coursing through our veins and, and, and everything about us is sinfulness, is depravity. This comes, it, this is an outworking of Adam and Eve's lack of trust of God in the garden when they sinned and were pushed out of the garden into the world. And from that time on, every man, woman that has been born has been born a sinner. We don't don't have classes to teach people how to sin. We have to have classes to teach people how to have character, right? Nobody taught their child how to lie. You had to teach them to tell the truth. Why? We're all born sinners. And that's where we, you know, when we look at the world's issues today, this is the great, this is one of the great issues of our day. Is that people want to believe, and and Chuck and Annette just had a precious grandson born this week, John Earl. And uh, he's beautiful. Got a, got, he's got more hair than I got. Uh, I mean, he, it's something else. I mean, I mean, a little jealousy. I was like, look at that baby. How in the world did he come out with so much hair on his head? That's amazing. Um, and I think I heard Annette say, well, his mama ate a lot of spicy food. I eat a lot of spicy food. That don't seem to be helping with my issue. So I don't know if that works or not or if that's true. But it, it, once you're big like me, it doesn't seem to work. It might work in the womb, but not outside the womb. But even as sweet as John Earl is, he, he's not born like a lot of people would believe, and that is he's just kind of a blank slate. No, no, he, he's not a blank slate. He's a little sinner. He's a little tyrant. That's, that's what he is. That's what we all are when we're born. Why? Because we are born with the effects of the fall in each and every one of us. And the longer we live, the more and more and more, and that plays out. And one of the biggest ways that that plays out is that it plays out. I'm not checking my phone. I'm putting my clock back up here. forgot to do that. Uh, one of the biggest ways that that happens is exactly what we see in the text. And that is the old, you know, look, you're, I, I guess it depends on when your kid starts talking. And sometimes they don't even have to talk. I mean, sometimes they can do it in nonverbal communication. Well, who do you think you are? I'm not doing that. Right? You ever told your kid, even when they couldn't talk, hey, go put your toys up? They didn't say, well, who do you think you are? But their body language and their actions said what? Well, who do you think you are? Don't you realize I run the roost around here? That I'm the big dog? I'm the cheese? I'm the authority? I'm the one that tells you what to do? And the problem is a lot of parents say, oh, baby, you don't have to go put that up. I'll do that for you. And boy, all that does is that just, that's like putting yeast 
in, in, in that, author, that authority inside that kid. Till one day they get older and, and, and they're still wanting to be the authority. And they're like, well, who do you think you are? And it's like, well, that, they've been who they've been from the very beginning. But authority. And, 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 and even as we get to adults, people will say, well, I'm not doing that. Who do you think you are to tell me to do that, right? Even in our day today, when, when we try to take a stand on truth, it's like, well, who, do, who, who made you the authority? Who made you the ultimate determination of what's right and wrong or what's true and what's false? And see, we don't have any authority in determining what truth is. God sets the standard of truth, and what we all must do is submit to His authority as the ultimate standard of truth. You know what happens when everybody gets to set when everybody is their own authority and everybody gets to set whatever they believe truth to be, you know what that's called? Anarchy. That's chaos. There has to be a standard of truth. And Jesus is that standard of truth. And, and so at the very heart of rebellion, the very root of it is this depravity in us that, that comes out before the Creator and it says, who do you think you are? You see, we see the depths of their depravity in Christ's grace as they argue against the very power that makes them able to argue. If you don't see God's grace in that, the God of the universe is standing there and they're like, well, who do you think you are, God? The very God that gave them the ability to reason and to argue is the one they're arguing against. If that ain't grace. Because I know some of y'all. Y'all wouldn't put up with that. If y'all had ultimate authority, if you could whammo somebody in a heartbeat, you'd whammo them. You'd do them in. You'd be like, just say, you might not do it on the first take, but you might say, hey, you want to repeat that? Like, here's my one act of grace. Say that again, and, and you're done. Like, straight to hell you go. You don't pass go. You don't collect any money. I'm done with you. But the fact that Jesus doesn't treat them that way, again, just shows us in the midst of such hostility, His amazing grace. Well, let, let me give you uh, a, a few verses here. Let me, let me run through these real quick. Kind of gotten a little behind on where I want to be. So just so you don't know that, uh, that, that this is not the Bible's first time to bring up Jesus' authority. And, and listen, not only does Jesus have authority... But Jesus shows us that he is the authority, but as Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus submits to the authority of his Father. Now, John 5, 19, Jesus, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father's do, Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So there we see Jesus, the authority, but being submissive, to the Father. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do the, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12, 49 and 50, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to do and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
Y'all got that? So you see Jesus, not only he says, I get my authority from the Father, but Jesus is also saying that the Father is greater than I, and I submit to him. Now, I know that probably brings up a whole lot of other questions. I thought they were one, three, and one, and equal, and they are, and that's a Trinitarian discussion for another time. But, but, but trust me, what you see here is the need for authority and the need for submission. But here's a second truth that comes out of this text, and that is we not only see the root of rebellion, but we see the fruit of rebellion. The fruit of rebellion. Now, Jesus tells a parable. Let's, let's read through this parable really quick. And he began to speak to them in parables. And a, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants, and he went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. I mean, that's, that's not asking a lot, right? I mean, imagine if somebody built you a farm and gave it to you and gave you all the resources that you needed to have this fantastic farm, and a year later they came back and said, can I get a little bit of the, the product from the farm? That's not asking a lot. They're not asking for it all, just some of it. And when the season came, he sent his servants to get some fruit from the vineyard, and they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. That's, that's, I mean, that's what happens today. You try to be nice to someone, you try to give them something, and then maybe you come back later and like, you know what, can I have 10% of the profits? <laughs> and you get a gun in the face or something. And they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant, and they struck him down on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him, and... and, and <laughs> And him they killed, so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to the one, one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You know what this parable is all about? This parable is about Jesus in the Old Testament sent a, sent a lot of prophets and a lot of preachers to his people. And what did he tell them to do? Honor the owner of the vineyard. And what did they do? They rejected him, rejected him. They made poor old Jeremiah cry. He cried so much, he wrote a book about crying called Lamentations. They made Ezekiel go crazy and write, this, write a book called Ezekiel with spinning wheels and all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, it was they, they treated the prophets of God horribly. And some of them were killed. And then, what, is it, what does this parable tell us? It says, then God sent his own son, right? He sent his own beloved son. And what did they, what did they do to him? Well, let's kill him, and, and, and then we'll own it all for ourselves. You see, the root of rebellion always leads to the fruit of rebellion. And what's the fruit of rebellion? This is not going to be a popular word. Let me get to it. It's destruction. It's destruction. 
What did Jesus say that he's going to do? He said, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them because of what they've done. And you know what happens? Jesus does destroy the temple. Or he doesn't, but the temple ultimately is destroyed just as Jesus had prophesied. In 70 AD, the temple that he is in now is totally wiped out. The Jews are totally wiped out. They won't go into their own land again until 1948. (coughs) Destruction. Why? Because that's the fruit of rebellion. Listen, if you and I continue to live in our rebellion, what will happen? We will be destroyed. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this series of verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, were, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish Uh, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lust of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations, uh, for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do, to do whatever they shouldn't do, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know what that is? That's the fruit of rebellion. And the Bible says that God will destroy those who live a life of rebellion. Not that he's going to annihilate you, but the the idea there is that you will be cast away from the presence of God into a place that the Bible says was created for the devil and his demons, and it's a real place, and it's called hell, and if you rebel against God, you will live there forever. Plain and simple. Unpopular. People don't like to hear that. But that's the truth this morning. And if you live with uh, the the heart and the attitude that, that says, you know what, God, who are you to tell me how to live? Then God will one day let you eat the fruit of your rebellion. Lastly, let's end on a positive note, right? I, I, like, I like to end positively. 
Let's talk about the reason for submission. We've talked about the root of rebellion, the fruit of rebellion. But look, there's an option here. You don't have to live in rebellion. That submission is not a bad word. Submission is, is not an evil word. Submission does not somehow rob your life of any joy or happiness. As a matter of fact, it is the key word to life, abundant and full. Let's look at what Jesus says and uh, here in the last five verses, and they sent <clears throat> and they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, "Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes?" Oh, that's a good question. I wish Jesus would have given a different answer. Wouldn't everybody, I mean, April 15th is staring us in the face. How many of you would love if Jesus would have said, absolutely, don't pay taxes? There'd be a lot of people that'd be Christians just because of Jesus' tax plan. That's kind of how we vote anyway, right? Based on the politicians' tax plan. Everybody being a Christian. Jesus said, don't pay taxes. That's, a, that's, that's against my religion. Well, Jesus didn't say that. What did he say? Is it lawful to pay Taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay him or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That's a coin. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why, what is the reason for submission? How about, I t how about you learn a little Latin this morning? The Imago Dei. When somebody says, why do you submit to Jesus? Just say the Imago Dei and walk off. And let them scratch their head and try to figure out what's the Imago Dei. Anybody know what the Imago Dei is? Imago, image, Dei, God, the image of God. You see, we have been created in the image of God. According to Genesis 1.26, he, uh, he created man in his own image after his likeness. That's what God did. He created man in his own image and woman. We are the image bearers of God. So Jesus has all authority over all life because he authored life in his image. Why should you and I submit to Jesus? The reason is, is because we are made in his image. And if God is the maker of man, then who knows better how man should live his life than the very author of that life? Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God took on flesh. He bore mankind's likeness that He had created in His likeness to do what? To show us 
how to live a life of submission to God the Father. And, and it says in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins. Where? In his body on the tree. Why does Jesus, who creates man in his likeness, take on man's likeness? Because God wants to deal with the problem that exists between God and man, and that is man's sinful rebellion against God. So Jesus comes and he bears our sin in a body like ours. Why? So that we can submit to him. And the reason why Jesus lives a perfect life is because Jesus never lived one moment of his life outside of the submissive. Out of, he didn't live one second outside of being submissive to God and God's will. Jesus was the happiest and most joyful person that ever lived. Why? Because he was the only person that lived his entire life submitted to God. He's the only person that lived his entire life submitted to God. I want to close with this story told by Tim Keller. And this story comes out of a counseling session that he was having with a young lady who was struggling with the issue of following Jesus, of giving her life, of submitting her life to Christ. And this is what she said. She said, I asked, or this is what he said. He said, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. You know why we're saved by the unmerited grace of God? Is because it's the only way to be saved and live a life of total submission to God. Listen, our problem this morning is not another Bible study. It's not another sermon. It's not another good worship song to sing. Um, it, it's not another small group to attend. It's not another accountability partner to have. Listen, this morning, what stands between you and me and joy unspeakable and full of glory is the word submission. Will you Will I submit to what we know God's will is? Many of us, and I know many of you in this room, you've been a Christian long enough, you don't need to know more of what you're supposed to do. What we need is we need more doing of what we know we're supposed to do. It's more of us quit saying to God, who do you think you are? Why did you say not do that? Why would you take that away from me? Why, you know, why would you try to you know, prevent me from having joy? And God is saying the whole time, come on, David. God is saying the whole time to you, he's like, no, listen, 
submitting to me, going underneath my authority, is where when you live according to my way, you will experience the joy that you read about in the Bible all the time. Now, that rolls off the tongue easy, but it don't roll off in everyday life easy. And that's why, praise God, we can go to the Father and we can say, Daddy, you know me. You know my heart. You're the heart knower. You know my struggles. You know where, you know where that rebellion still lies in me. Lord, free me more and more today from my willingness to rebel and give me more and more a willingness to submit. And, and the way you're going to do that is, is that you're going to have to ask, to, you're just going to have to ask the Lord, Lord, help me believe that in everything that you've asked me to do is for my good. Help me to believe. Everybody in here, if I said, God is good all the time, you would say, all the time, God is good. Well, if you believe that, then you shouldn't have any problem living in submission to God. So we got a problem in belief. And so now we ask the Lord, Lord, help my unbelief when it comes to your goodness. Heavenly Father, in these next moments, as we sing our final song together, and as we wrap up another Sunday around your word, I pray that you would take the truths of your word, not the words spoken by me, but the words spoken by you, that you would plant them into our heart, that in the days ahead, that these seeds of the gospel would bear much fruit for the, for the Christian, that it would, it would put us in a greater place of fruitfulness because we're living in a greater place of submission and surrender to who you are. And then, Father, our prayer is for anyone that's never surrendered or submitted their life to you as Lord and Savior, that today, with, simple, with the simple words of faith, that they would just simply confess their sin to you, acknowledge that they are a sinner and that they're a rebel who has totally lived against your way of life. And that they would just simply ask that you would come and save this rebel from their rebellion, that you will, that you will forgive their sin and that you will come and you will live in their life through your Holy Spirit. Father, what needs to be done, only you can do. So we entrust you in these moments ahead in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together.